Good to see everyone tonight. It is a little past time. Well, it's right on time according to my watch. That one says it's a couple of minutes, but we will go ahead and get started. I didn't have time to go home and get my tall chair tonight, so uh, I'm down on the ground rolling around tonight. Before we get started, let's bow and have a word of prayer, and then we will begin. Shall we pray? Our dear Father, we're so very thankful, Lord, for your kindness, for your grace that you bestow upon us. Our Father, we're thankful that we can have confidence in our heart and the peace that passes all understanding, knowing that when this life is over, we will go to be with you in heaven. Our Father, we are thankful for the church that meets here at Willow Avenue. We're thankful for the elders. We pray that you will bless them and give them strength and courage and confidence. Our Father, we ask that you'll be with us tonight through our study. May we grow as a result of it and be more faithful in our service to you. Our Father, we ask that you'll bless our country. We know that it certainly needs it at this time. We pray, Father, that you will bless the city of Cookville and the leaders that are here. We pray, Father, that you'll forgive us of all of our sins. We thank you for Jesus and his blood that cleanses us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, let's do a quick review here. And that is on the uh, Acts memory chart. I'm going to uh, tell you what, instead of going through all of these, let's just pick up at Acts chapter 10. What is Acts 10? What's Acts 10? Gentiles begin. Things are going to change. In Acts chapter 1, the Lord tells them the church is about to come. Acts 2, the church begins. From Acts 2 until Acts 9 you read about the spread of the, the church amongst the Jews, and Acts 10 is when the Gentiles come into the church. Acts chapter 11 is what? Okay, Gentiles can go to heaven. It's really a retelling of Acts chapter 10. All right, Acts chapter 12. Herod exalts himself. How does he do it? Two ways that Herod exalts himself in Acts chapter 12. Okay, he has a speech in which he just brags on himself and he thinks he is something else. And the second thing he does in Acts chapter 12 is what? Okay, he kills James the apostle and he arrests Peter. Okay, so that kind of gives you an outline of 12. Now 13 we're going to do because we are going to get into that tonight. Acts 13 is a rhyme. Acts 13, the sun not seen. Now, what is that all about? What's going to happen is in Acts chapter 13, there is going to be a wicked sorcerer who opposes them, and Paul is going to strike him blind. And he says, you will not see the sun for a season. And so that kind of outlines chapter 13. All right, let's begin tonight. I'm going to give you a quick review of chapter 12, bring us up to speed, and then we'll pick up. In chapter 12, Herod the king kills James, the brother of John, who is an apostle. The Jews really liked it. And as a result of that, he arrested Peter. He threw him in prison. After the Passover, he was going to kill Peter. But you remember, an angel appears to Peter, and he opens the gate, and he takes him out of the prison. He takes him to Mary's house, where all the church was gathered, and they were praying for Peter. So Peter knocks on the door. The servant girl named Rhoda goes to the door. She hears Peter's voice, 
And she doesn't open the door. She runs back and says, Peter's at the door. And they said, Peter's not at the door. You're crazy. And she finally persuades them, and they go and open the door, and it is Peter. And so at that point, we skip to the next morning, and the Bible says there was no small stir in the prison. Herod goes in, and he questions the officers, the guards. They don't know what happened, and so Herod puts them to death. Herod then leaves, and he goes to the cities of Tyre and Sidon. And I've got this on a map here. You can see I've got Tyre and Sidon pointed out, and then, and then Jerusalem down on the bottom. And here are some, let's see, I thought I could zoom in on this. There it is. These are seacoast uh, towns right on the Mediterranean. And uh, here's one that's a little bit uh, better to see. Jesus spoke about them in Matthew eleven twenty one. Woe unto you, Chorazin, woe unto you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a long time ago. This is a modern view of Tyre and Sidon. It gives you an idea of what they might have looked like back in the day. I found that uh, to be very interesting. So anyway, Herod gets here, and when he arrives, he's in a dispute with them, and he's been withholding food from Tyre and Sidon. And so he dresses up in his fanciest clothes, and he gives a speech, and they're really kissing up to him because they're trying to smooth over everything. They want to get their food supply back. And so as he gives this speech, they just say, oh, it's the voice of a god. We can't, but we've never heard anybody speak like this. And he just eats it up. The Bible says he did not give glory to God. And as a result of that, the Bible says that worms ate him. It doesn't give us a lot of details about what that means, but um, history says that he ended up with a terrible pain in his stomach. It took him five days of agonizing pain until he died, and that he died at the age of 54. Now, we left off at verse number 24, so uh, Brother Dan is going to read for us. Let's read Acts 12 and verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. All right, stop right there. This is interesting to me because oftentimes in the Bible, something really tragic like this happens, and you would think the result would be people would not want to become Christians. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead by God, and as a result, what happens? The Bible says the church grew and it multiplied. Here, what ends up happening is the Lord strikes him dead, and as a result, what happens? The Word of God grew and multiplied. It's interesting, oftentimes persecution and hard times end up causing the church to grow. Very, very interesting. All right, verse 25. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Okay. What we have here, I put together this little map. Paul and Barnabas have been down here in Jerusalem. And when they finish, uh, they had taken money down there as a relief to help the brethren in Jerusalem that they had gathered from uh, Gentiles. When they get done, they travel back north, and they're going to come back up here to Antioch. You can see here it's 300 miles. I was reading that 
in Bible times to make this trip on foot, it took about 15 days to walk it. So you're talking about two weeks to walk from Jerusalem to Antioch. All right? So they returned to Antioch. Now we're going from Jerusalem, and the scene's going to change back to Antioch. And notice that it says, who went with Paul and Barnabas? John, Mark. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10, you learn that John Mark is related to Barnabas. Now, I'm not sure there's a little bit of dispute about the relationship. They're either uncle and nephew or they're cousins. But somehow, these two guys are related. It seems that John Mark is younger and Barnabas is older. Why is that important? When you get into chapter 13 a little bit, you're going to see why. So, here we leave Jerusalem and John Mark, who is the son of Mary. They've been in Mary's house praying. John Mark is her son. And when they leave, this time John Mark goes with them to go back to Antioch. All right, now let's go into 13. Before we start reading it, I want to mention this. From this point forward in chapter 13, the focus is going to be on Paul and his labors. Everything is going to focus on Paul. I can't think that we go back to Peter, except in, in chapter 15 there's a conference in Jerusalem. But otherwise... It's going to deal with Paul. It covers about 20 years of history from chapter 13 to the end of the book, and it goes from about AD 45 to AD 65. Now, when did the church begin? What year? About AD 33. So we're picking up here about AD 45. So this is about 12 years after the church has begun, and Paul is about to start the missionary journeys. Now, I put together a, a little video, and I've never done this before, so I don't know how this is going to work. Uh, we haven't really tested it, but I want you to see this video. What I've done is a little video that will kind of give you an overview of the rest of the book. It's going to be um, an overview of the missionary journeys. Uh, can you all play that back there, or should I try to play it off my laptop? Okay, I'll try it here and just see what happens. Let's see. All right, let's try this. Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead in approximately 33 AD. Originally, Jerusalem is now, the center. Let me mention of the this. If you notice across the bottom, the timeline. As I'm speaking, you will see us moving around the land and talking about the journey, and along the bottom is tracing the year. So as I'm speaking this, this is going to show you approximately what year we're on, okay? By the time we get to Acts chapter 11, that is changing to Antioch. You remember in Acts chapter 8, there was a persecution and they were scattered from Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 12, the Apostle Paul begins what we call the first missionary journey. He is sent from the church in Antioch. He goes into southern Turkey. On his second journey, he goes back and he sees those churches again. Then on his third journey, he's raising support for the poor in Jerusalem, and he goes back to the original churches. He goes to Ephesus, where he's going to spend two years, 
He writes a letter to the church at Corinth. We call that 1 Corinthians. Then he goes back to Macedonia, which is the area where we find Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. And he writes a second letter to the Corinthians from Philippi. We call that 2 Corinthians. Then he travels down from Macedonia back to Corinth, and he stays a good while in Corinth. While he's in Corinth, he writes a letter to the church at Rome. Then he leaves Corinth. He goes back to Macedonia, back to Philippi again. This is going to be his last time in Philippi. He goes back to the coast and then to Jerusalem, where he ends up being arrested. After his arrest, he spends two years in a jail in Caesarea along the ocean. And then, because he is a Roman citizen, he appeals to the emperor. And after those two years, he then travels toward Rome. He is shipwrecked on his way to Rome. When he finally arrives, he is under kind of a house arrest. And while he's there in Rome, he writes what we call the prison epistles. And that is pretty much the outline of the rest of the book of Acts. That summary, that two-minute summary, three-minute summary, however long it is, is the rest of the book of Acts. And I thought it would be good to kind of see an overview, and then as we go through it, it will help you understand it, because you get bogged down. He went here, and he went here, and he went here, and he went here. And I read some commentaries, and they want to talk about each place he went and all the things about that place, and those are good, that is valuable. To me, the most important thing in the book of Acts is not what each city looked like and what they did in each city, but the doctrine that you're going to get out of the book. So what we're going to see is the first missionary journey that is going to begin in chapter 13. We traced it there. Then you've got the second missionary journey. We traced that. The third missionary journey, which is really his arrest. He goes back to, or the third missionary journey, then he goes back to Jerusalem and he gets arrested. And then he's going to be taken to Patmos. They have a shipwreck. And then he's taken to Rome, and that's how the book is going to end. So uh, was that helpful to see uh, kind of an overview like that? Okay. It took a long time to do. So if it wasn't helpful, tell me, and I will never do that again. So, All right. Let's keep going. Uh, we are getting into Acts chapter 13 now, and we will begin with verse number 1. In the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, we're told that we're talking about the church that is in um, Antioch now, because the focus shifts from the church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch, which is a Gentile church. So Saul and Barnabas, I mean... Um, yeah, Saul and Barnabas leave Jerusalem, and they go to Antioch. We're told in the church at Antioch, there were certain prophets, and there were certain teachers. What does that mean? These were men that had miraculous abilities. Remember a few weeks ago, I showed you from 1 Corinthians 12, there were nine different miraculous abilities. One of those miraculous abilities, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, was the ability to be a prophet. That is, they could speak the Word of God, um, directly uh, revealing the New Testament. Why would they have needed that in the first century? 
Okay? They didn't know any other way. They didn't have a New Testament. So if a preacher got up to preach, he couldn't say, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, because there was no such thing as Matthew chapter 6. He couldn't say, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because the church in Corinth hadn't been established yet. There was no 1 Corinthians chapter 12. How were they going to know how to worship? When the church first began, these are people that are Jews, and now they're Gentiles. They start the church in Antioch. How are they going to know what to do? How do you partake of the Lord's Supper? Can you imagine if Christianity was a brand new religion, you had never heard of it before, there is no New Testament, how would you know how to worship? What happens is the Lord gave them the Holy Spirit who spoke through these miraculous gifts and revealed these things to them. 1 Corinthians 14 is the best example I know of in the Bible because it talks about a miraculous worship service and how this worked with all the different people revealing things. But we're told specifically that in the church in Antioch, there were five men who had the gift of prophecy. There were certain prophets, and it lists their names. Now, what is very, very interesting to me is there is a, a man whose name is Manaean. It says that he had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Let me show you why this is so very interesting. You remember when we did the family tree a couple of weeks ago? At the top of the family tree, this is Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Herod the Great is the one who built the temple in Jerusalem. Well, Herod the Great, you can see, has a bunch of wives. We've got one, two, three, four, five. There's five wives. Uh, yeah, here's the other one. Five wives that are listed. There may be there others, I'm not sure, but there are five wives. Now, imagine living in a house, five wives all living together. They would have interacted together. Would that be awkward? Would that be a difficult situation? There was no doubt that would cause problems. Now, you can see each of the wives had multiple children. So all of these children are growing up in a house together. Now, this is very interesting. If you look at this fella here, let's see here. Can you see him? That I got the red circle going around. This is the son of Herod the Great. This is Herod Philip. Why is Herod Philip uh, known? Where have you heard of him? You've heard his name in the New Testament in one place. Now, look at this guy that's got the red circle around him. This is Herod Antipas. Where have you heard his name? Do you see? Um, I'm sorry here. We've got, this is Herod Philip II. This is Herod Philip I. But they're all growing up in the same house together. Herod Philip I was married to Herodias. Herod Antipas stole his wife. Now, when you stop and think about this, these two guys grew up in the same house together as brothers, and then he stole his wife. Can you imagine such a thing as this? But then what we're told in this passage is we have this man. His name is Manaean. He is a prophet in the church in Antioch. And the Bible says he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. This is Herod the Tetrarch. He is a son of Herod the Great. And it seems that Manaean 
is like a foster son. He's not a full son, but for whatever reason, he is brought up in the house with these brothers. Can you imagine being brought up in the house with Herod Philip, who marries Herodias, who's an ungodly woman, Herod, the, Herod Antipas, who is the one who kills John the Baptist. He steals his brother's wife, then he kills John the Baptist. That's the house this guy grew up in. Why is that so interesting? Because here in Acts chapter 13, the Bible says he is one of the prophets in the church in Antioch. That is amazing to me to think about. Why is that? Here's the church in Antioch. It's a Gentile congregation. These guys grew up in the same household. Some of them are as wicked as wicked can get. One of them is listed in the New Testament as having killed John the Baptist. Jesus says in Matthew 11, amongst them born of women, there is not one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said, this is the finest man who ever lived. One of the brothers killed him. Another one who grew up in that same household is a prophet in the church in Antioch. How does that happen? How do you have these people that are brought up in the same household and one obeys the gospel and is a prophet and godly and goes down in history and the other goes down in history for killing John the Baptist? How does that happen? <laughs> same way it does today. Does that happen in houses today where you will have one who is a faithful Christian and one who is absolutely rebellious? Sure, it happens today. And a lot of times it has to do with the influences that people get involved in. It shows that we have free will. Regardless of the home that you grow up in, people have free will. All right, let's keep going. Verse number two. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Okay. They're in the church in Antioch. The Holy Spirit speaks to them. Of course, the Holy Spirit is speaking to the people regularly because they have prophets. And the Holy Spirit said, I want you to take uh, Barnabas and I want you to take Saul and separate them out and send them on these missionary journeys. That is, the Holy Spirit sent them. Then the Bible says, they gathered together, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them out. Now, here's my question. Why did they lay hands on them? What's the point of saying that? Sometimes people get confused about this, and they see the laying on of hands, and they know the Holy Spirit was given by the laying on of hands, and they think maybe you've got people passing on the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice this. Sometimes, this is talking about Timothy. One's from 1 Timothy, one is from 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 14, Paul says to Timothy, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Did the eldership give Timothy this miraculous gift that he had? Who could... Who could pass on miraculous abilities? Who could give the gift of the Holy Spirit? Only the apostles. But people get confused because it says, don't neglect the gift that's in you that was given with prophecy with the laying on with the hands of the eldership. 
Now look at 2 Timothy 1.6. He says, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. What happened here? Apparently, Timothy, uh, apparently Paul laid his hands on Timothy and it was through the Apostle Paul that he received miraculous abilities and it was with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. In other words, at that time, the eldership laid their hands on him. They would have said a prayer and wished him best. That seemed to be the custom at that time. When they would send someone out, when a person would take on a new work, they became a gospel preacher, the elders would put their hands on them and pray. There's nothing miraculous associated with that. It's clear he got his abilities through the laying on of Paul's hands, and it seems that the elders put their hands on him and prayed at the same time. So what's going on here? The Holy Spirit said, I want Paul and Barnabas, I'm going to send them out to do the missionary journey. The people gathered together, they put their hands on them and prayed. Why? That is their custom. All right, something else I want you to notice in verse number 13, it says, Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now, that might seem like a very unimportant phrase, they sent them away, but this is, a, is, is very key here. I'm going to show you why. The word apostle, does anybody know what the word apostle means? Okay, it's a messenger specifically it is a messenger who is sent. It is one who is sent. Why is that important? It is a generic word. Like the word elder is a generic word. The word elder really means an older man. But there is also an office of an elder. How do you tell the difference? You've got to look at the context. The word deacon is a generic word that means servant. There is also an office of a deacon. How do you tell the difference? You've got to look at the context. The word apostle is a generic word. That means a person who has been chosen and sent. So the apostles of Jesus were ones who were chosen and sent by him. But you could be a generic apostle. Why is that important? Because in Acts chapter 14 and verse 14, the Bible says, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Saul, heard this, they tore their clothes and, they were, and uh, were crying out. Was Barnabas an apostle? Was Paul an apostle? Yeah, Paul was. Was Barnabas an apostle? Okay. 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 He was an apostle in some sense, right? That's why this phrase is important in Acts 13 and verse 3. They laid hands on them and they sent them on the missionary journey. It meant they're the messengers who were sent out to do this work. So then in chapter 14, it says, but when the apostles, what it means is when the two guys who were sent out, um, when this happened to them, remember it's a generic word and you have to know the context. In fact, I put this in here so that you could see in Acts or Hebrews 3 and verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Is Jesus an apostle? Okay. He was 
is Jesus one who was sent? Yeah. Who, who sent him? God sent him. He sent his son. We sing a song, God sent his son. Well, Jesus, in the generic sense, was an apostle. Paul and Barnabas were sent on this mission. They were apostles. And then there was a special sense in which Jesus chose 12 men, and he sent them out on a mission, and they were the apostles. Sometimes we get in trouble with the word deacon or deaconess because it's a generic word that simply means a servant. And later on, there is a woman in the New Testament. Her name is Phoebe, and she is called a deaconess. It simply means she's a female servant. But because of that, some people today have said, we can have female deacons in the church. You've got to understand it is a generic word, and you've got to look at the context. And we get in trouble if we don't do that. Our minds focus in on what we think about today, and that is the office of a deacon, the office of an elder, the office of an apostle. But in the original language, this was simply a generic word. Okay, enough of that. Uh, verse um, 4, Acts 13, 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Okay, this is the beginning of the first missionary journey. Oh, if, if you wanted to see it, here is the uh, Greek word. Literally, it means one cent, and it goes on to talk about uh, their mission. All right, now what we have... Verse 4 says, they were sent out, that means they were apostles, by the Holy Spirit, and they went down to Seleucia. And I circled it here so you could see the beginning of this journey. They leave Antioch, you can see that, and they make a short journey over here to Seleucia, and Seleucia is right on the coast, and that is where they are going to get in a boat and start their journey. And then from Seleucia, they're going to go 60 miles. This is the island of Cyprus. It is 60 miles off the coast from Seleucia, and they're going to land in the port that is called Salamis. When they get to Cyprus, that is the home of Barnabas. He was born and raised in Cyprus. So Paul and Barnabas come here. They've got John Mark with them, remember, and this is home territory for John Mark. All right, uh, verse 5. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Okay, they went to the synagogue. If there was a synagogue in any place, the requirement was there had to be at least 10 Jewish men there. If there weren't at least 10 Jewish men, they wouldn't build a synagogue. So that would represent 10 families. So they got there. They immediately went to the synagogue. Why did they do that? Why did they go to the Jewish synagogue? Okay. Uh, if you want to have a place where a bunch of Jews are going to gather, go to the synagogue. That's where they're going to be. They're not Jews, and they're not worshiping as Jews. They're going because Jews are going to be there, and they can preach to them. And it mentions that John Mark is their assistant. Okay, verse 6. Now, when they had gone through the Isle of Patmos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Okay, this is very interesting. You can see here, 
that they're on the island. It says that when they had gone through the island, so they're going to go from Salamis, they come to the other side to Paphos or Paphos, however you say it. When they get there, they're going to meet a certain false prophet. His name is Bar-Jesus. Incidentally, from Salamis to Paphos is about 90 miles. So we think it's a quick journey. It's a 90-mile walk across this island. They get to the other side. This is where the seat of the government is. When they get there, they are going to encounter the seat of the religion on this island. The seat of their religion was Aphrodite. They worshipped a goddess called Aphrodite. At that point, they called on, a pat on Cyprus, they called this goddess Paphian, which is identified with Aphrodite. They meet a man who is a fake. He's got fake powers. He's just like Simon the sorcerer from Acts chapter 8. Do we still have people like this today who have fake powers, who are claiming to have abilities, who are doing this just for money? Absolutely, we still have people. You turn on your TV any night and you flip through the cable channels and you can find guys like this. There have always been people like this. They meet one, his name is Bar-Jesus. He's also known as Elemus. Elemus is an Arabic word that means wise. So he, he goes by the term or the title, the wise one. Verse 7. Who was the proconsul? Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and brought to hear the word of God. This is very interesting because they get to the seat of the government and there's a man there who's named Sergius Paulus. He's an intelligent man. In fact, in the original language, it carries with it the idea he's a man of understanding. He's a wise man, he's an intelligent man, he's a government official, but this guy, Bar-Jesus, has him in his pocket. He is fooled by this guy. Can intelligent, wise men of understanding be fooled by these religious hucksters? Does that still happen today? Yeah, just because a person's a wise individual doesn't mean that he's not going to fall for this sort of thing. It's interesting, just as a side note, critics for years criticized the book of Acts because they said this term pro-council, Sergius Paulus was the pro-council, they said there was no such position in the ancient world, and they said that the Bible was just wrong. In more recent years, archaeological data has found that that was exactly right. Not only have we found the title pro-council, we have found the title Sergius Paulus just like the Bible said, confirming the book of Acts. Now, we're told about Sergius Paulus, he was eager to hear the word of God. Now, that is very interesting when you find a man who is eager to hear the word of God. Now, I'm going to hold some thoughts about that because the bell's just about the, to ring, but Elymas has him in his back pocket. So when he is eager to hear the word of God, how is Elymas the sorcerer going to feel about this? He is not going to like this. So let's read verse 8. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. As the proconsul listens to this and he's believing it, 
This guy, Bar-Jesus, Elymas, he says, no, he's trying to turn them away from the faith. In fact, it's written in the imperfect tense to indicate that he had had several encounters with Paul and Barnabas about this. That is, things are getting heated between them. Why does he not want um, Sergius Paulus to believe this? He's his best customer. I mean, he's probably a man of authority. He's got some money. He's got influence. He doesn't want to lose this guy. And so what we're going to see, verse 9, then Saul, who is called Paul, this is the first time his name is called Paul, and from this point on, he's going to be called Paul, the rest of the book of Acts, and he moves from the second man behind Barnabas to the lead man. His name changes, and he becomes the leader. And he's going to deal with this guy. This is where he's going to strike him blind, and that's our rhyme. Acts 13, the sun is not seen. All right, we'll stop right there, put a peg down at verse 9, and pick up next week. Thanks.